faith sees best in the dark. Now, that's a challenging statement to consider. It comes from the great, not the great Dane, but the great Danish philosopher and theologian, Soren Kierkegaard. And in that little short sentence, it comes from a, a longer section, a collection of writings that he called the gospel of suffering. And in this section, he's arguing that at some point in life, we all come to an end of our wisdom, of our insight, of our ability to see our way forward. We all enter dark moments of life. And it's in those darker moments of life that faith allows us to see more clearly. The life of Sandy Greenberg really helps illustrate the truth of that statement. Sandy, or Sanford Greenberg, lived most of his life, has lived most of his life in darkness because he can't see. He's blind. He lost his eyesight when he was a college student at Columbia University. During his junior year, really for about a year or so before, he had... He had been having eye problems, and he went to a couple different eye doctors, and his eye disease was misdiagnosed, and he was prescribed treatment that actually made his condition worse. Until finally, on a very cold Valentine's Day in February 1961, Sandy woke up in a hospital bed to absolute darkness that would stay with him, has stayed with him, for the rest of his life. For a short time, he plunged deep into despair, which is very understandable. His life came to a grinding halt. But then one of his close friends, his roommate from, from college named Arthur, came and visited Sandy and convinced him to go back to school and to finish his degree. And Arthur promised to help him to read books, to find other people who would read his books to him and, and be with him in class and guide him along so that he could finish his degree at Columbia. So, so with a little bit of reluctance, Sandy plunged back into life at Columbia as a junior. He only lost one semester, but he tried to catch up, and he did succeed in catching up and graduating with his class. He tells different stories in his memoir that I You've guessed, I recently finished. The title of his memoir is Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And in one account, he really vividly described what life was like for him now that he could no longer see back at Columbia. Columbia is in New York City. And at one point, he was in midtown Manhattan. Columbia University is in uptown. And he was with his friend Arthur, but Arthur and he couldn't stick together. So Sandy had to find his way from midtown Manhattan back uptown, get on the subway, get on and off trains, catch a connection, all on his own without being able to see. And he described in detail what that experience was like, stumbling along in the darkness, somebody a kind stranger pointed him toward Grand Central Station. Can you imagine trying to catch a train there? 
and not being able to see. He stumbled down a staircase. He ran into people numerous times. He banged his head and opened his head on a steel beam. He tripped over a stroller and an angry mother yelled at him. He had all kinds of terrible experiences, but he found his way onto the right train, and then he was able to even make a connection, and then finally he was able to get off near the campus at Columbia. And when he stepped off and began walking, he heard a familiar voice near him. It was his friend Arthur. And Arthur had been with him the entire time, silently following along, making sure he'd He didn't die, (laughs) but allowing him to find his own way in the darkness. And Sandy said that was a turning point for him in his life, his new life, without being able to see that from that point on, he decided to no longer live with fear. If he could get from midtown to uptown by himself, what could stop him? As I read Sandy's memoir, the really disturbing thing that kept coming back to me is is that how often our life with God is lived in darkness. All of us, sooner or later, we encounter an obstacle, a challenge that we can't seem to overcome. For all of us, our expectations and reality end up crashing into one another. And we face disappointment. And we have to figure out what to do with that. And in those moments, very often, it feels like God is silent, not giving us the answers we desperately ask him for. Sometimes we we feel like his presence is is not even, it's, it's no longer with us and We stumble around in the dark trying to find our way. For some of us, that even creates a crisis in our faith, in our relationship with Jesus. We start asking questions that don't have easy answers, and we stumble around in the dark trying to figure out where God is and what he's up to and what's happening in our own lives. That's one reason the story of Ruth is so important to us. Because if, if you read the story of Ruth from chapter 1 to chapter 4, beginning to end, and if, if you've tracked along with this, this short message series, then you've picked up that a whole lot of Ruth's life was lived in the dark. She didn't know what was coming next. and She faced challenges that, that she didn't know how to overcome. And yet she was able to find a way to keep moving forward with faith. Today we're concluding her story. We've we've come to the end, Ruth chapter 4. And we want to come away with a few insights about what God might be up to in the darkness of our own lives. About how he's demonstrating his faithful, redeeming kind of love. Even when we don't hear him or see him. And then we want to think about... Five different actions that we can take, that we can put into practice for ourselves. Now, you remember how we met Ruth. We were introduced to Ruth through Naomi. 
You remember that. Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two boys, they encountered a famine in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, the land of Israel. They were, they were part of God's chosen people, but famine came down on them and they didn't have enough food to eat, so they got out of town. They traveled to Moab and they, they ended up living there. We don't really know for how long, but eventually Naomi's two sons, they got married, they found wives, and in time... Naomi's husband and her boys, they, they all died. Naomi decided to go back home to Bethlehem. And Ruth determined to stay with her. She wouldn't leave her side. She could have gone back to her own family and her own culture, even her own religion, but she said, your people are my people. Your God is my God. I'm following you all the way back. You can't shake me off. I'm going with you. And then in the middle of the story, we follow Ruth and Naomi as they start from scratch. They get back to Bethlehem, and Ruth goes to work in the fields. Naomi might not have been able to do that at that point in her life, and Ruth began picking up the, the sheaves, the harvest that was left over by harvesters during barley and then during wheat season, and she would gather that up and and tried to find enough and put enough together to keep them alive all year long during those growing seasons. And there was a, a man who showed special kindness to her, a man named Boaz. And Boaz was a relative of Naomi and Elimelech, of their family. And this man was a protector for her. He, he warned his workers to look after her and, and, and not to push her away and allowed her to take from the best parts of the harvest. He showed intentional kindness and generosity to her. And, and really, as, as we read chapters 2 and 3, you start reading between the lines a little bit, and you can begin to feel that there was a deep respect and affection that was growing between them, and probably conversations that were happening that aren't recorded in chapter 2 and 3, which we're probably all grateful for. And eventually, Naomi... Naomi gave Ruth a little bit of a nudge that it was time to let Boaz know that he could move out of the friend zone. And in chapter 3, Ruth, she prepares herself and goes to the threshing floor after the harvest, and, and she, she takes part in this tradition that's unusual to us, but, but where she was inviting Boaz to spread his skirt, the skirt of his robe, the, the hem of his cloak that was keeping him warm, to spread it over her as an act of protection. And in some cultures, that was, that was sort of a, an invitation toward marriage. And Boaz was delighted. He was thrilled. But the laws and customs in that time were different from ours. There was another relative who had a legal right, if he chose to exercise it, to marry Ruth instead of Boaz. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it. It's so foreign and different from what we experience. So, so Boaz had to be very intentional and careful in his negotiations. This involved, this marriage involved a business deal too. So he called together 10 of the elders, of the leaders and rulers in Bethlehem, and he got them together as witnesses, and then he called on this close relative to sit down and talk business. 
And he entered into a, a negotiation with his relative over purchasing property that belonged to Naomi and Elimelech and now Ruth. And that property would also transfer with the marriage, with marrying Ruth. Well, this other relative, he was interested in the property, but he didn't want to get married. So he backed out of that deal very quickly, and, and then Boaz stepped in to become in that culture what was called a kinsman redeemer, a relative who could redeem, who could pay a price for property and then marry into the family of, of a man who was deceased. And I want you to see in verse 9 of Ruth chapter 4, you can turn there if you'd like. You can also read along on the screens and listen. I want you to hear how Boaz and the elders, the rulers, what they said back and forth, beginning in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are all witnesses today. I've bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, their two sons. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. And then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. And they continued with more words of blessing on Boaz and on Ruth and on their family. And if we kept reading chapter 4, we'd find out that they experienced blessing, that they, Boaz and Ruth, they married, and they ended up having a son together. They named him Obed. And then at the end of Ruth, the very end of the book, we find a short genealogy where we discover that Ruth's son, Naomi's grandson, he becomes the grandfather of the greatest ruler in Israel's history, of the, the shepherd boy who would grow to become King David. And as the book closes, we see Naomi again. Naomi that we saw at the beginning of the book. And where her arms at the beginning had been empty, and she was grieving her husband and her sons and didn't even have enough food to eat. Now she was living in abundance, and her arms were filled with this little baby boy, this grandchild, who was to her a redeemer, who was in a way restoring what had been lost and broken. What a reversal! What a dramatic change for Naomi and Ruth. It didn't undo all of the pain and suffering and difficulty that they experienced. But throughout the course of their life, their story is recorded for us so that we can see things that maybe they missed while they were too busy living it and struggling through it. Because as we look back, we can see how God faithfully demonstrated his love to them even in the darkest points of life. Like a silent friend who was following along, making sure they would find their way. I want us to make three observations about the way that God demonstrates his faithful love in our lives, even in dark moments. And then I want us to try to put into practice five action points that 
that can become part of our life as we all try to struggle through and live through those darker seasons. First, God demonstrates his faithful love at an unhurried pace. (laughs) This is one of the really frustrating things about God. (laughs) He, He moves so much more slowly than I want him to. He takes his time. He never gets in a rush. He's never in a hurry. He moved so slowly in the life, in the experience of Naomi and Ruth. When I read their story and I feel the situation that they're in, I want to speed things up. We don't really know how long it took them to suffer in famine around Bethlehem. And we don't know how long it took them to travel from Judah into Moab, or how long that they lived there, and how long that they struggled, or how long Elimelech and the boys were sick before they died, or how long it took then for Naomi and Ruth to get back. And we don't know about the sleepless nights where they worried about the harvest and if Ruth would be able to gather enough enough food for them, not just for the next day, but for the long months that they knew they had ahead of them. We, We can miss that because we just flip a few pages and read their story, but God was moving at a glacier pace in their life. You know, I'm convinced that God gives children the parent that they need And he gives parents just the child that they need, and sometimes grandparents call that revenge. (laughs) One of my my kids, who I love dearly, always moves through life at an unhurried pace. There is nothing that I have found that I can say or do to help motivate my child to move at, at an appropriate speed, especially when we're getting in ready in the morning for school. I mean, you know what I mean? And you just cannot hurry this child along. This one just takes their time at all times. And it's become an infuriating, (laughs) as well as a really beautiful thing. Because that child can notice things and see things and even make things that none of the rest of us can. And sometimes in our hurry, in my hurry, in my hurry to find the next thing, to overcome the next obstacle, to hit the next goal, to meet the next challenge, to make the right decision, to make the next decision, to see what's coming up ahead, to try to plan and strategize over what's coming up ahead, sometimes I can miss the beautiful things that God's doing in my life. And I think all of us, all of us can do that. God demonstrates his faithful love to us at an unhurried pace. Just to give you an idea of what that's like. Even after Ruth gave birth to a boy and Naomi had this child in their arms, it was a couple generations before their family would start to experience what God was really doing and what he was up to in their life because their life was about more than just their experience. It was about more than just Obed. It was also about Obed's grandson, David. And it wasn't just about David. You want to know how slowly God moves? A thousand years after David, 
the real one who was promised came through the line of Boaz and Ruth. Jesus the Messiah was born to give light and hope to all of us who stumble around in the darkness. You think God moves slowly in our lives? Try a thousand years. A thousand years are like one day to him. So maybe you and I can slow down just a little bit and trust God to be faithful. God demonstrates his love (laughs) at an unhurried pace. He's not really working on our schedules. He's asking us to adapt to his. Second, God works. God demonstrates his faithful love most often through available people. Through people who show up. Through people who are available to him. You know, I mentioned this weird little thing about Boaz and his cousin, his relative, who had a legal right to marry Ruth and He had the right of first refusal, you could say, and uh, the negotiation that they entered into. This was a practice in those days that's called leveret marriage, and and you're going to find it creepy. I mean, if, if a woman was married to a man and that man died, it was the responsibility of the deceased man's family to look after her, to care for her. And so it was their responsibility to find a husband for this widowed young woman, And it was often, it should be, it was supposed to be a relative, a close relative. And the closer you were in relation to the deceased man, the higher your level of responsibility. So if a brother's wife died, the surviving brother was supposed to marry the widow. And if there was no brother, then it would spread to a cousin and so on through the family. And I mean, you you can be honest about it, it's weird. None of us want to do that. That sounds like an unusual uh, tradition and device. But, but we have to remember, it was such a different time and culture. Economic opportunities were very rare. And a widow didn't have the opportunity to get a job or an education and, and go out and launch into a business. That would have been very unusual. Our time is so different from theirs. And And so this was a way in that culture where families took care of each other and that could allow a surviving widow to survive, to not die, to not end up on the streets, to give her a place where she was taken care of. And and it's it's odd to us, but it worked in that culture. Well, this, this closer relative, this man who was more closely related to Elimelech and Naomi than Ruth, he had the opportunity to marry Ruth and to purchase all the property that belonged to Elimelech's family. But when he discovered that purchasing this property also came with a new wife, he said, no, thank you, that's not for me. And we don't really have a lot of detail about why he thought that. He said something about his inheritance being marred or becoming less than. So maybe he was concerned about other children that he already had, that if he had a a new son with Ruth, that then maybe that son would end up inheriting part of his property, or maybe, maybe it was an economic thing. Maybe he was concerned that he couldn't put out the expenses to both take care of this new property, this new land, the agricultural, agricultural expense, as well as caring for Ruth as well as Naomi. Maybe he felt like that would have stretched him a little bit too far. Or 
he could, have, he could have been a little bit of a racist. Ruth was a Moabite. She came from a different culture and tradition. It may be that he just didn't want to marry this young Moabite widow. We're not really sure what was in his mind. But Boaz then took that opportunity. Boaz was the one who was available. When this man backed out of the deal, he said, I'm concerned about, about my heirs and about my legacy, about my inheritance that I'm going to pass on. The inheritance I pass on, it may become less than if I, if I say yes to Ruth and to this new opportunity. That man remains unnamed in the scriptures. And 3,000 years later, you and I are still talking about Boaz. <laughs> That's shocking. How many people from 3,000 years ago can we name? He was available. He showed up. He generously gave to Naomi and to Ruth when they were in need. He stepped up to take on the responsibility of caring for them all throughout their life as well as managing their property. He exposed himself to risk. He was available. God's not always looking for the best and the brightest and the wisest and the most gifted and talented and beautiful. Remember, he's the one who makes beautiful things out of dust. God demonstrates his faithful love through available people. People who just raise their hand and say, I'm here. Yep, I'll show up. Third, and, and this, is, this is hard, but God demonstrates his faithful love frequently in painful experiences and situations. It's in the parts of life where we hurt that God is all often showing us his faithfulness, that he's often teaching us something about who he is and what he's up to, and he's often accomplishing his purposes through us when we're facing uncertainty and challenge and confusion and pain. C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote about this very often, and he argued that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf and dying world. In his book, A Grief Observed, he chronicles a great deal of his own pain as well as that of his wife as she struggled through cancer and, and ultimately died. And he writes about what that meant and what that experience was like together and what that experience was like in the dark with God. And I want you to see one statement that he makes here. And before I read it, I want to apologize in advance to any dentist who's in the audience listening. Listen to what Lewis writes. He says, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good? 
have they never been to a dentist? <laughs> uh, isn't that the truth? This is a painful part of our experience with God, but the pain that we experience in life, it's never without purpose. And what we experience, it may not be something that God sent into our life. It might not be his, his desired will for us and for all people because we live with the effects of sin and a sinful fallen world. And not everything that happens to us is sent to us from God. Not everything that happens to us has some kind of hidden message that we have to decode. A lot of the painful parts of our life, it just happens because that's how life works. Life is difficult. It's challenging. It's painful. For all of us, we will all get to a point where we experience death and everything that precedes death. But in all of that pain, God is able to work his purpose. Even in, in that suffering and even in that challenge, He's able to accomplish his will. He's able to demonstrate his faithful love. He's always showing up in our lives in that way. God demonstrates his faithful love at an unhurried pace. He, he works on his own schedule. He works through available people, people who just show up, and he often does it in painful situations. You know, Sandy Greenberg, near the end of his memoir... He reviewed all of his life, and he had two chapters where he tried to list out all of the liabilities and the assets that came from his blindness. It was remarkable, the perspective that he had. And he was writing as a man in his 70s, and his list of liabilities and debits was hard. Not being able to see no longer being able to see the face of his wife and never seeing the faces of his children and grandchildren, not to mention all of the stumbles and wounds that he's taken with falls and bumping into things. And... But then he listed all the credits, all of the assets that came his way. And when he got to the end, he, he borrowed a line from Lou Gehrig and said that he felt like he was the luckiest man in the world. When, when he was still a student, in his student days, he invented a machine that could compress sound. This was in the 60s. Because he would have readers read books to him, and he would record them on a reel-to-reel -reel machine, and then he would listen to them so that he could learn and keep up in his studies. But he invented a machine to compress the sound so he could read, so he could listen at a faster rate than they were speaking. He was able to start and launch a business from that invention. His business ended up becoming a technology company that was contracted by NASA to help form the onboard computer systems for the Apollo missions that put a man on the moon. And his businesses and investments from that point on, they just took off and soared, as you can imagine. Today, would you believe this? Sandy Greenberg sits as the chair of the Wilmer Eye Center at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He's on a mission to end blindness in our world for everybody. The impact of his life has influenced every one of us, even if we don't know him. 
He's an incredible person. He listed some of his different investments, and one of his early investments was $400. It came at a time when he was pursuing a master's and Ph.D. degree. Yeah, he kept going to school, and he and his wife, they they didn't have much money. In fact, $400 was almost all their life savings, but remember his old friend, Arthur. They stayed close friends all throughout life, and, and Arthur got in touch with him, and He had an opportunity to make his first professional music recording with another old friend of Arthur's. His name was Paul, and he needed $400 to buy into that business arrangement for Art and Paul to make this first recording that was professional. And so Sandy came through for his friend Art. And Art and Paul made their first recording that really didn't go anywhere. It didn't make a big splash until a few years later, a DJ remixed the music and then relaunched it, and then it became a number one hit that I'm sure all of us, maybe all of us, most of us would know. A song that starts with the words, Hello, darkness, my old friend. It's Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel received an investment from Sandy to record the sound of silence. Pretty remarkable. Real quickly, I want to give you five action points that we can put into practice in our lives as we try to figure out this God who allows us to stumble around in the dark but is always present. First, take your next step. Find your next step and take it. There's always one next step. And and we don't have to know every step that comes after. We don't have to know five and ten steps ahead. We don't need to know what happens next year. We just need to know the next right thing for us to do. That's what Naomi did. Sometimes that was to sit in grief for a while before getting up to move back home. Sometimes that was just getting up and going to work in the morning for Ruth as she harvested and picked up the sheaves. Sometimes it's being generous to influence the life of somebody else like Boaz. Just find your next step and take it. Second, praise God. Praise God anyway. Praise God at all times. Praise God even when you feel surrounded by the darkness Naomi, Naomi was trapped in her grief and said, call me bitter. Don't call me kindness. That's what Naomi means, kindness. Instead, call me bitter. But at the end of the book, the women in her town gather around. And you know what they say? They say, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord because of the great things he's done for you. Praise God to spite the darkness. Praise God at all times in life, no matter what it is that we're experiencing. Third, show up. Show up for other people. In our life, there's somebody else who desperately needs you, who needs me, who needs us. We just need to show up for them. We need to be available like Boaz was for Ruth and Naomi, the way that Ruth was for Naomi when she said, you're not shaking me, I'm with you. When God brings those people into your life, show up for them. Just be there. Be available. Fourth, don't be afraid. It's normal to be afraid of the dark. (laughs) Do you remember when you were a kid and 
you were really afraid of the dark and maybe you had a little nightlight or you didn't want the lights to be turned off and maybe sometimes a parent would come and comfort you and look after you or maybe you didn't have that experience. Maybe there was nobody to help you overcome that fear of the dark. It's really something we never shake. That's why, that's why humans build fires and invent light bulbs. We, we drive that darkness away because the darkness is uncertain and insecure. It is inherently a fearful thing. God's always with us. Even when you don't see him, even when you can't hear him, when you feel like he's abandoned you, he's always there. You don't have to be afraid. He's our good father. We are his sons and daughters. Five, reflect on God's faithfulness. When your faith is shaking and shaken, I don't know if there's a better thing you can do than to look back on God's faithfulness in the past. Reflect on those moments and parts of your life where you might have lived like he was absent, but he was still showing up for you. We're going to close our service in a, in a little bit of a different way. And I want to give you about two minutes to sit quietly and reflect on God's faithfulness in your life, in your life experience, even through those painful moments and seasons, at all those different movements of life, how has God been faithful to you? We're going to listen to a song, and there's some verses on the screen that can help you as you reflect on God's faithfulness, and, and then we'll end with a final note of worship. Jesus, you're here. You're here. You're working in this place. You're present in the dark moments of our life. Even when we don't see you, even when we can't hear you, when we are unable to feel your presence, you're with us. So we're asking you to help us believe And we want to see your light. We want your light to light up our darkness and the darkness in our world. We want to be little light bulbs that are demonstrating your presence for other people. So even through the harder parts of our stories and experiences, help us to be those people who are showing up in the lives of others so that your light can pass through us and illuminate them. Lord, you're here. Even in the darkness, you're always here working with us.